Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right, so I'm sitting here and I'm talking to Troy Pottinger, and you guys may remember an episode I did with him a while back, and uh, there was a lot of positive feedback, so I wanted to get him back on and talk to him about season preparation and all that kind of stuff. So, Troy, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit for everybody? Yeah, it's good to be back, Luke. Uh, good to talk to you again. I I think we talked, I don't know, what was it, about a, was it almost a year ago? It's a while back. Yeah, it's a while back. Yeah, it was probably before season, wasn't it? Anyway, yeah. Um, just uh, I'm uh, Troy Pottinger. I live out here in northern Idaho, the Panhandle, up pretty close to Canada. Uh, spent my whole life really just, uh, you know, putting everything I got into bow hunting whitetails in the public land mountains of northern Idaho, eastern Washington, and Western Montana, and then I've, I've been fortunate over the years to get to travel out to the Midwest and hit some really good states, and I've been to Canada, and yeah, just, you know, uh, love whitetails and put a lot of time into it, and it's pretty much what I like to do year-round, so that's a little bit of my background. I'm actually a teacher out here in northern Idaho, and uh, 
I also have a small construction slash logging business that I run uh, that I've run every summer since I first got my teaching job 25 years ago. So, yeah. So Troy, I, um, I got to ask you how, how'd the season end up going and wrapping up? Well, it, it turned out pretty good. I, it, it's funny. I was, I was thinking about this today when I knew I was going to be visiting with you and, and, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that hunts specific deer that, that I find a lot of times I'll watch a buck grow up for years uh, in my areas on cameras and I'll just leave them alone. Even on the public, public land, I still leave them alone and I let them get age. And I like to hunt that five and a half year old buck and older. Um, and I've done several podcasts in the past and guys have asked me, you know, when was the last time you killed a buck that was just, you didn't know. And the fact is, it's been a long time, probably a couple decades almost. And this year, this year of of all things, I end up targeting a specific buck, and uh, I had a, just an absolute giant that I was after on the public lands, um, and was with him. I was in the game with him. Was really close to his bed early, and. I just never could get him to make a mistake, even though I was real close to him and I was picking him up on my cameras quite a bit. And he was far enough away from my home and from my work that that played into the equation a little bit. I, I wasn't able to hunt him quite as much as I would have liked to. And it was purely from a distance issue that I had trying to get there in the daylight. You know, we got to work and work schedule was in the way and could get up there on the weekends i just anyway all that to say he ended up uh he ended up kind of moving out on me after hunting him for almost a month and i was really after him so i didn't spend any time on any other deer and then i transitioned to a different buck uh once that buck started showing me that i needed to move on him and try to find him somewhere else because he was moving uh before the rut and i transitioned hunting three or two different states so i moved back over to Idaho and started hunting this other buck because he was starting to show me that he was killable. And I do play that game with all these big deer. I, when they're killable and I'm in the game with them and I'm real close to their beds and I know I'm going to get them in the daylight and I'm seeing it on my uh, trail cameras and stuff. That's when I get on them. I really go after them hard once I think they're killable. So anyway, I moved into chase, started chasing that big deer and was, I I was pretty sure it was going to happen. And, uh, I ended up having this trespasser buck that when I shot him, when I killed him, it was just right at the end of November, early December. When I killed him, when he came in, I knew it wasn't my target buck, but he was such a good deer. And I could tell he was an old deer. Um, I, there's no way I was going to pass him. <laughs> so I, I shot him and, and, and killed him. And he's a great buck. He's really big, heavy tank of a buck. And, uh, he was just a four by four. And actually when I shot him, I didn't know it. I knew he was either a big four by four, or a big five by five, just because he had a big, heavy, tall frame and his body, you know, was just dead. It was dead nuts. I could tell he was five or six years old. So anyway, I shot him and killed him and he didn't go far. And when I walked up on him, he surprised me. I had actually <laughs> called my son. I'd actually texted Ty, my boy. And I said, Hey, I just shot a big deer. And he's like, dad, was it? He said, was it Romeo? I said, no. I, I said, at first I, th- I said, actually, I thought it was, but I got down. And then I said, no, it's not Romeo. I said, you got to get over here. So, so he was in his, 
he was in it. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, so you had never seen this buck on any of your cameras or well, anything? I, well, hold up. I, <laughs> I've, I have so many cameras and so many bucks that I keep track of that it didn't process with me yet. And this was one of those bucks that after the fact, and after I got to settle down and go home and look at all my old pictures and go through my old sheds, then I realized that it actually was a buck that I had very minimal pictures of from the past. And it was because I was never really close to this deer I killed. The reason I killed him is he was out doing a big, I think he was, you know, I've seen it for years, these big deer in our country out here, the the end of the actual breeding of the rut is usually the last week of December. Excuse me. The first week of December is the end of the breeding, not the last week. Okay. So all that to say, what I think I did is caught this big deer at this scrape that I have. Um, I caught him making a big swing through the mountains to check for the last does during that first week of December. And I think that's why I caught him where I caught him. Um, but at the time, at the moment, no, I didn't think I knew him at all. Uh, plus the sheds that we actually had off of him, my son, who has a freaking photographic memory, (laughs) Ty was like, dad, I think I know this deer. I think we have one of his sheds from like three years ago, which we go through hundreds of sheds, at least a hundred a year, new ones. Um, so I was like, okay, Ty, because I always, I'll tell you what, I don't doubt that kid. Every time he brings something up like that, he's always spot on when he finds a picture of the shed or, you know, we don't keep all of our older little sheds. We get rid of them. We sell them. We keep just the big ones. So all this to say, ended up, uh, you post the pictures, you kill the deer, a good friend of mine that hunts quite a ways away from me, but within distance of this deer's travel said, oh, yeah, Troy, I know that deer. I've had him on camera for four years. And he said, Troy, that deer's six years old. <laughs> so then we put so then we put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And sure enough, it was a buck that my son and I had a little, just a small amount of, of uh, history with, but nothing to where we were targeting him or anything like that because we were never getting him on a regular basis. And the stand that I had hung like five or six days before for the actual targeted buck. When I shot mine, I knew once I walked up on him and it was a different deer. And I kind of thought it was when I was walking up on him, he only went like 30 yards. Um, I knew my son could jump in that stand and try to kill that big deer I was after. So that all played into my mind when I shot that deer. I thought, well, I kill a big trespasser. I call them trespassers. I end up killing a big trespasser here, which I ended up doing. I already was thinking, man, Ty can jump over here and hunt this big six by five that I'm after. So I end up killing this big four by four mainframe, four by four. He came in just shy of 150. So he's a big four point. And uh, Ty, you know, and I and this other friend of ours got together after it was out. and, and, And it was evident that it was a buck. We knew a little bit, but my buddy who sent me the pictures and trail cams of him said, yeah, he's six years old. And it made sense because when he walked in, I could just see everything you ever want to see when it comes to aging him body wise and his big, heavy, tall tined, heavy rack, big, heavy tines. He was just a mature buck. So, yeah, 
So that turned out good. And then my son jumped on the other big deer. You know, I'm glad you asked me because Ty, my boy, took over that spot and we had the big deer that I was after was a six by five. We called him Romeo. And Ty ended up, and it's all on film. Ty ended up having Romeo roll in on him about four or five days later. And we knew it was going to happen because we were so close to his bedding area. And uh, he rolled through. And Ty had a standoff with this buck on film for almost 20 minutes. And the buck was straight on. Ty could have shot him straight on if he would have wanted to take that shot at about 23 or 24 yards. But Ty did elected not to take the straight on shot and was just waiting for him to turn one way or the other. And I don't know how that big deer did it. It's on film. He wasn't spooked or acting crazy or nothing, but he just turned. And when he turned, he did a full, like a 180. And then he was within, in one and a half to two seconds, he was butt to Ty. And Ty, like Ty and I said, after we watched the footage and we're film study guys, we're both, you know, Ty's going to go play college football. I used to do all that stuff. So we were watching film on this buck and we're breaking everything down. And I'm like, man, I think I might've tried to shoot him right when he turned there and stopped him. And Ty's like, yeah, but he goes, dad, I just, the way that buck was acting, I thought for sure he was just going to turn and walk right out broadside in front of me. And that's what he looked like he was going to do. But instead he did a 180 and then he simply just walked back into the timber and he messed around back in there for another five or 10 minutes and then left. So Ty had a close encounter with him, but he never did get an arrow in him. And it, oh, Ty hunted his ass off for that deer. Like he was doing all day sits for in the coldest weather we had. He was in snow. I mean, he was doing this every day he had free till the season closed. And then that stand is in a money spot. It's in a, it had, we had a big scrape up there that deer would use daily. Of course we're targeting. We had, and, and by the way, we had a, between Ty and I both hunting that spot that I hung, he had bucks there every day in the daylight cruising. I mean, it is a, it is a cruising location. It was at the end of the rut. The bucks were looking for the last few does that were not covered. And we had a doe there that had not been covered yet by a buck. She still had her fawn with her. And that fawn was about to get kicked off when I shot my buck. And then the buck that Ty tried to kill that I was actually targeting came in and bred that doe while, while Ty was trying to kill that buck there, if that makes sense. So we knew, we knew we were in the game and the big deer that I tried to kill and Ty ended up hunting, the big deer, the big six by five that we called Romeo, he lived really close and bedded quite often in, a, in an area. Um, you know, the bucks in these mountains don't bed in the same bed every day, but he was real close to us area wise. I would say there were days where he was bedded 150 yards from Ty, maybe 200 and other days based on the wind direction, he might've went over the ridge a little to get better wind and bed up, but he was never probably more than three or 400 yards from us ever, which may sound like a lot to, um, farm country ground type of, you know, smaller congregated deer, but in the mountains, two, three, 400 yards is nothing for a buck to travel and get out of his bed. 
there was a lot of days, though, I know based on the camera, he was batted 150, 200 yards from us, max, maybe 100 some days. And anyway, all that to say that that spot was a hell of a hang and hunt spot because we had other bucks there that 99% of anybody with a bow and arrow in their hand would have been happy to whack, you know, take a shot at. We had a we had a couple beautiful three-year-olds that were using that spot too. I'm pretty sure I would have been more than happy to to take one, take one of them too. <laughs> we were, you know, we were excited after I killed my buck because we're thinking, man, we're gonna this stand right here is gonna produce two bucks that are six years old. Yeah, that's and that that's doesn't amazing. happen very often in the mountains. That that's not a that's not a common occurrence. So, and Ty held out. He let every other buck go. He did it. He did. He did what he did the year before. He passed up fifteen or twenty bucks this year, wanting to kill a five or six year old buck. That's a hard thing to do. I, he's I've, se- <laughs> and he's seventeen. Yeah, that's that's a lot of discipline. I mean, I'm thirty seven, and I still don't uh, <laughs> have that much discipline. If I see a decent one come along, he, it's, it's he hard has, to pass it up. It is, and he has, and he does it. He doesn't do it because that's what his dad does. He does it because he enjoys the game. He enjoys the, like he says to me all the time, I, he goes, I, he goes, I just enjoy seeing those young bucks come by dad because I know what they can become. Uh, And he's killed some big deer, you know, he's only 17, but he's killed a couple whoppers and and public land bucks. He's killed a 166 class or 65 and the other one was 150. So, and then he's killed three or four bucks that, you know, are Growing up, we're not not that class, but to already have a couple big mountain bucks that are fifty and sixties under his belt, he he has a little different perspective to where he and I kind of have a thing we do. We we love to eat deer meat. You and I were talking about it before we started the podcast, but we always fill our tags at the end of the season if we need to on a on an extra dough. We always have we have some spots that produce a lot of does, so we do that too, and we know we're going to get the meat we want. So. We like to see those young bucks get some age on them. So one one of the things I was kind of trying to allude to earlier that I, I maybe I didn't clarify, but so if you get a stand or a spot that you think's a good spot and that wind holds to where you can hunt it multiple times, is that something you will do or or do you try and kind of keep it limited to how many times you hunt a spot? I get this question a lot. and. I almost feel like I'm the Lone Ranger at this because I take great uh, I, I take great pride and I dissect a location to where I can usually well actually I won't hang a stand until I'm happy with it but I can usually hunt it on three out of the four wind directions so I'm usually in the game about 75% of the day or 75% of the wind opportunities there. You know, remember I'm hunting, I'm using daily thermals too. So um, you won't hang in necessarily the same exact tree, but you've got I, multiple spots picked out based upon your thermals and wind. No, no, I will hang. I will find that spot, that tree location that will work for me for so many different scenarios. And I always want to have, I usually try to have at least 75% of the wind scenarios that are common for that area, including mixing with the daily thermals. If you follow me. Yeah. So I break all that down in my mind before I hang a stand, I go through all of it. Morning thermal with the, 
with the predominant prevailings and with an occasional, uh, you know, a wind that I do expect to get at least once or twice a week. And then I usually set up everything to where the most, uh, the least uh, wind that I need to worry about is going to be in my favor 75% of the time or better. And on those days, if it's blowing towards that bedding area, I just don't go up there. But I'm always camped out. I probably don't talk about it enough, but I get in tight to these big bucks bedding zones, an area they really like to bed in during that month of the season. And where I'm set up, and I'm going to answer your question, just hang with me for a sec. <laughs> but, but where I, and, and it's very complicated because where I set up for September buck is completely different on the same whitetail buck when I'm setting up on him during the rut and in late November, if you follow me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You get all that. So yeah. I'm a, am I going to bounce all over in different trees up there near his bedding area where he completely feels safe from wolves and mountain lions? Hell no, not in this country because he's got that figured out over five or six years of his life to where he really dials in because he's old young bucks screw that up and either get eaten by a lion or a wolf before they're five or six, or yeah. they get scared to death and they figure it out and they stay alive. So what I'm getting at is, is I'll get up and put in a primary stand set up like I did on this deer. And I put it in, in late November. I mean, you, you know, it wasn't like I uh, had this sitting here the whole season, but I knew where he was. I knew where he was bedding. I had snow to, I could backtrack him a little ways. I could see where he was coming from. So I moved in on him real aggressive, set this stand up, and we ended up, I killed my trespasser, and Ty had his opportunity on the big deer within a 10-day period. Now, were we coming in and hanging and hunting every day? No way. Not on that big deer. I didn't want to make the noise. I didn't want to deal with, uh, if I would have went in there and hung and hunt and tore it down, that deer would have probably picked me off or, or knew I was in there making too much. It had been too much commotion. Plus the elevation gain that I had to make and get to him was a nightmare. Mm. I mean, it was a pull to, it was a couple miles up in there to get to him. So I set it up to best suit my situation for him. And then what I do, what I would have done is I always have my mobile set up. Let's say if, I wouldn't have killed, and I still would have been hunting that bigger that bigger deer that Ty almost killed. If I would have needed to move, say, 50 yards, that's where, instead of tearing down my existing stand and making any noise, that's where I would have came in with my mobile, and I would have went and hang and hunted maybe a day on that other spot to try to kill him, and I probably would have left it, you know, and had two spots to kill him, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Because, yeah, instead of really, I, I was, I, I knew this deer was killable. He was daylight walking. He was making what I call making mistakes. And he was so comfortable up there where he's bedding. He had no idea with our entrance and exit. We were literally coming from the backside of the mountain and doing the, coming in a long way around to get to him and hunt him. Now, if we would have came up the face of the mountain on this deer, we'd have never seen him once. If that makes sense, because <laughs> yeah. he's sitting yeah. there with the thermal all yeah. day. Yeah. You Just know, we, we were, we were backdooring this guy and we were sneaking in right on his wind edge on the backside of him and catching where he liked to travel through a 
over a big knob and down into a big bowl that's just all timber and he's servicing all the does down in there for the last few years another thing we had on this big deer is we've been watching him grow up and watching his patterns for three years before we even hunted him this year yeah that so we have a lot of Yeah. yeah you know we're not going in blind on this deer so Let's kind of, I, I kind of want to, I got a question about that then. So when you are, are setting up your stand and you, you know, I mean, you know where his bed is and, and where that travel path is, how far off or, or away from are you trying to set up on that travel path to give you like a buffer for your wind? Yeah. And something that I neglected to add and it's super important is, you know, I, I hung this stand and I'm, and I had that deer, or Ty had that deer out of that stand right after me, and I figured I was going to get a shot at him. But I had found his set of sheds last year, and I hung that stand 70 yards from where I found those sheds because I knew where he was bedding. So yeah. to answer your question now, how far off of his travel pattern was I? Yeah. And off of the, the predominant prevailing wind that mixes with the thermals morning and evening, it was probably, I mean, I had it dialed. I'd like to explain this setup because it was killer. It was 15 to 20 yards off of his major favorite trails that he takes to get to where all the doe family groups live. Okay. And I'm just set up coming in from the backside, never coming in where my wind blows into his bedding area, literally coming in up underneath him through a north face of timber, but 500, 500 <clears throat> vertical feet below him, circling around a ridge, coming across the top of a saddle, sneaking up the south side of his north facing bedding area, coming in the back door on him, hiking up the mountain, sliding into the tree stand where he likes to exit his, his northeast face bedding area, and he likes to exit and travel to the south and the west because that's the predominant winds we get out here. We do get some northern winds. So even when I got a north wind, it was blowing for me back towards the south. And I was on the on his I was on the back side of that. So I was always safe. Anyway, he was always traveling this heavy, heavy uh ocean spray, cyanosis thicket and heavy timber to get down to this south and western destination that he had to where a bunch of doe family groups lived and way down below that there were uh some ag fields way down in the bottoms probably two miles away um all that to say i set up literally right on the edge of this tiny little opening up high probably 30 yard circle and that circle opening served for me this little tiny meadow served for me as a buffer for him he would always come in and then skirt the edge of the timber and go through the timber so i set up on the other side of the opening to where he rarely would walk way out around or cut right through the middle of the opening so it protected me if that makes sense yeah, yeah. from him because he wouldn't he would never he never wanted to walk right across that opening he would always just bend along with the brush on the edge of the brush through the timber which gave us a perfect broadside shot of him as long as we shot him before he got into the heavy timber. Right. I've always anyway. kind of wondered that, you know, like when, when I think I'm setting up for a shot lane or something like that, whether or not 
I'm actually putting myself at a disadvantage because <laughs> the deer is going to skulk around that clearing or kind of, you know, hug some heavy stuff that I'm not seeing or something like right. that. And what really helped me with this deer, and it was money. I mean, it was money. I, Ty and I talked about it. I probably would have shot that big buck. Ty's a little more, um, well, he is, he's, he's great, <laughs> but he's, but he's less experienced than me. And the one thing I've learned being a mountain bow hunter, you get one chance at him. Yeah. And I've made some really tough shots in my life um, because I'm not afraid to take a, a good shot, but it's tight. Like you got two inches, you got to do it right. You know, you got to hit perfect. And I, and I'm, I'm being candid here. I, I get them killed when I see them. I, I, if they give me an opportunity, they're getting shot. And I'm not saying I don't take stupid shots. They're usually close under 20 yards or 25 yards max, but I'm pretty aggressive when I shoot. If, if he gives me a chance and he quarters enough to give me a slip that arrow in behind that front shoulder, I do it and I get it done. And I also yeah. shoot a setup that just blows through deer. I blow through them. Now, have I ever had a hit a deer really bad and had it run off? Yes. In 2004, I did. And that's the last time I had one that I screwed up on and I found him in January. Um, but all that to say, those taught me, you know, that taught me a good lesson about you can get a deer killed pretty damn easy if he's under 20 yards and you have the right setup. And as long as he gives you, opens up to you enough to give you that shot, I'm very comfortable with, and I look at it this way. I better be comfortable with one inch or two inches of clearance because if I'm not, I'm not a very damn good shot yeah. at 20 yards. Yep. At 20 yards, you should be able to get that done. You know, and Ty, Ty felt bad. He's like, Dad, yeah, I probably should have shot him. I said, no, no. I said, you have to think for yourself. You have to be comfortable. And I can see, son, why you didn't take that shot watching the footage. Yeah, that's he goes, what yeah, I but find. You would, but he's like, Dad, you would have killed him. And I said, yeah, I probably would have. But you're not me. I've got 30 plus years in at this. I probably would have killed him. I probably would have, but I'm proud of you, son, for you thinking for yourself and shooting what's comfortable for you, you know? And, yeah. and Ty said it, Ty said it on the big deer he was going to kill. He's like, dad, I just thought for sure the way he was behaving and you can see it on film. He was never skittish. He just, he just, those big deer sometimes just walk back into the timber and work their way through the dark timber. And that's just what they do. I've I've kind of kind of come to realize like more than anything comfort level plays into your shot placement. Yep. You know, if if you go yep. into it with the confidence and comfort level, you you're going to be calm calm enough and have that ease to, you know, put it where you're actually going and do a shot sequence or whatever you do to get your shot that that if you have that comfort level, you're going to do it. But if you're on edge or kind of doubting yourself, you're going to you're going to mess up on that shot. And I, I actually think did, that's a did that this year. <laughs> Yep. I think it's a great point. Um, every person needs to know what their comfort level is and where their confidence level is. And, yeah. and for me, it's, for me, it's if, if a bucks, if a whitetail buck is within 25 yards of me, he, he better, he's in trouble <laughs> because if he gives me anything, I'm going to kill him. And that's just, that's just how it's been for me over the years. And it's where I'm comfortable but if a buck's 35, 40 yards from me, it's funny. I don't even, I don't even, I really don't even think about picking my bow up or shooting him. Okay. I like him. I like him close. Uh, and it's because close has always worked out great for me. So let's talk about that then. Your, your setup, what, what are you shooting? 
uh, for an arrow. Like I'm, sh- I'm shooting a like a I think mine is six hundred and eighteen grains overall. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I got one hundred twenty five grains on the point, and then I think my arrows are like twelve point one grains per inch or something like that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we're heavy. I'm heavy too. I uh, you could we'd have to do the math. Some of the arrow geek guys out there that geek out all over that and i think it's great don't i'm not saying that (laughs) i'm not saying that in a negative way because i love it but i shoot a 125 grain head i shoot a 75 grain brass insert okay i shoot a 29 inch fmj and then i shoot you know just the blazer little fletches so there you go so you're you're probably sitting because i i think mine my inserts are 100 grain inserts and they're half certs so i shoot the vic the victory and it's got the stainless steel woven within the carbon fiber. I think it's a injection right, or something like that. And I just so happy with that heavy setup. And like, I've learned like the one year I shot and I shot a dope and I, I don't know why I always shoot with my quiver on, but for some reason I just took it off that, that day. And I picked up my bow and took the shot. And as soon as I let go of that arrow, I go, Oh crap, what did I do? And I hit two inches to the left. And, you know, that magical pocket there, you know, right behind that shoulder that everybody, you know, you want to hit. It hit two inches to the left of that and it blew through bone like nobody's business at 30 yep. yards. Yeah. And I was just like, holy cow. And then yep, on my second, on my deer this year, on my first buck, I shot same thing. I had to put a second shot in him. It was one lung liver and he'd already been eight hours, six, six hours. And he was still alive, but he what he was hurt bad. He wasn't getting up, right? And so I put a second shot in him, and I blew through both shoulder blades and it took clipped the top of his heart right off. And after blowing through both shoulder blades like that with that arrow, I was like, okay, this, I, I don't ever have to worry about bone. Just put my shot on, and if I'm, you know, I mean, not that I'm gonna ever take a bad shot, but I'm never gonna have to worry about that. I think within you know twenty twenty five yards. That and that's that's my philosophy. And just so the listeners are clear, I haven't had terrible shots. I haven't got lucky because I shoot a heavy setup. I'm just like you. I like the idea, the philosophy of if and it does happen that two inches off happens, you're sending a projectile that's going to do its work anyway. Yeah, it's going to pull itself through. Yeah, right. And, and that's. A lot of that for me stems from growing up hunting elk, bear, whitetails my entire life. We've always shot big animals out here. We've always, Idaho has always been a fixed blade only state because of it. Um, I'm a huge fan of, of just a fixed blade head because I don't ever have to worry about a moving part uh, being compromised in any way. Yeah. So my heavy setup I've had for ever. I can't remember the last time I didn't have at least a 50 grain insert and a 125 up front. Yeah. And that's and, that's pretty much what mine is is what you got going now. I think right. maybe I think I 25 grains heavier, you know, yep. just to I wanted I wanted that magical number for some reason in my head when I when I was at the bow shop I was playing around and I was like, "No, I want to try and get 14 and a half." foc or 14 percent right. and i think right. that was my target so we ended up throwing 100 grain in there and it and it, and it met that and so i was you know happy <laughs> yeah and i know i know you know i got a good buddy in alberta that shoots all the big animals moose everything with his bow every year and i remember talking to him 20 years ago about this 
he was always getting on my butt. Yep, you get that FLC perfect, Troy. And I said, man, I, I agree with you. I like it. And he got me to bump up to 75. Yeah. And that was a long time ago. So it's been a long time since I haven't shot, what is it, 75 and 125, 200 grains up front. Yeah. That's which it's, I really like. It's and a good, and it, it's a good and setup it's been, that way. It is. I, I shot a big whitetail. I've got a picture somewhere on my Instagram. It's a great big five by five. My wife's in the picture with me sitting behind me. I shot that bucket like 12 to 15 yards. And my memory is not perfect, but I know it was really close. And all he gave me was two inch quartering two, but I, sh- I hunt really high. And that's something else I'll share with your listeners. I'm setting, too. 20, <laughs> I'm setting at 25 feet and I like it. I I prefer it in the mountains. Um, when I go to Oklahoma, when I hunt the Midwest, I, I really don't hunt that high. I don't feel like I need to. I, I feel like the, the ground, the terrain's different. A lot of times out here, I'm staring into a hillside that's steep. So I get pretty high. So if you can picture, if you will, as I talk, talk you through this, I'm hunting high. I'm shooting down through animals at a different angle than most bow hunters. And a lot of my arrows, like the buck I shot this year, if you look at him on Instagram, I think I have one picture. You can see it blew out the bottom of his chest. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's that was my first buck this year, too. The same thing. And I actually had to call a tracking dog. Like, I called him because I just, there wasn't enough blood. And, and I, I ended up, I was actually lining it up for the podcast. It was kind of funny line the guy up for the podcast and he's like hey man i'm just letting you know if if you need any help uh give me a call <laughs> and then it yeah. was it was gonna rain yeah, i mean it was it was literally gonna start raining and i was like man i won't find this buck until the next day if i if i don't so i called him he came out and uh it was raining downpour in fact before he got there and i'm thinking oh i'm not gonna find this deer but when i was talking to him on the phone i was like he's like what kind of you know is there hair on the ground or anything i said yeah there's a little bit of you know some brown and white and he's like really white oh that's not good and i go no no no. i don't think you understand i was 30 feet up in the air on this deer because they're coming over a hillside and i wanted to be above that hillside and he's like oh okay and he he couldn't picture it in his mind until he got out there and then he looked at my setup and he's like oh i see what you're talking about now so like yeah it blew out you know towards the belly hair on yep. the bottom but yep. you know it still went through him I, it was just he stepped at the last second and I was so focused on trying to do my shot that I didn't focus on my sight picture and he turned a little bit during that shot as I was as I was getting ready to let go on him and I didn't compensate for that and I just ended up clipping one lung in the liver but he was recovered I, uh, and uh, <laughs> it all worked out but I totally understand what you're saying when, with that whole thing about lot of- you know the high up a lot of my bucks don't go very far. Like this year's buck went 25 to 30 yards, I believe, max. It was dead. Um, that big buck I was telling you about, my wife's in the picture with, that buck, it was unbelievable. I shot him, and that heavy setup, to get back to this, that heavy setup was so impressive. I've never seen anything like it. I, I don't know if I will again, but he was real close to me. Again, I think he was between 12, 15 yards, somewhere in that range, and I was real high. And it was a steep hillside and he came down to this big scrape under me. But anyway, he was standing there. He barely, barely turned enough to squeak that arrow down in high down through him. And it blew out the bottom of his chest. This was no joke. <laughs> he, it hit him so hard and blew through him 
that the arrow stuck in the ground with him on the ground and he never got up from that spot. He died right there. <laughs> I've never yeah. seen anything like that. <laughs> it was like tacking him to the ground. I'd yeah. never seen anything like it. All he did is his back feet. He kicked and he spun a full circle like doing a snow angel and it was dead. <laughs> I've never seen that with a bow. I've seen. It I've with never shotgun, seen it with but... a bow and I don't know if I'll ever <laughs> see it again, but yeah. I hit him just perfect and blew right down through his heart. Yeah. I mean, it was steep. I shot right down through him. It was ridiculous how steep I was on top of him. Cause you're That's... 30. I was, I was probably 30 feet up in that tree. And he was probably 12 to 15 yards right under me, you know, so I'm yeah. shooting at a real steep angle. Anyway, yeah, pretty impressive stuff with that. I'll never, ever shoot a light setup till the day yeah. I'm done. Me neither. Me neither. But so with, with all that and talking about that, I kind of want to, I want to touch base and talk about the whole, what you're doing now um, to get prepared for next season. So, I mean, are you resetting cameras or are you waiting on that are you kind of scouting finding beds shed hunting what, what, what do you got going on so my season ended right around first of january um we filled filled every tag we had to, for the meat put put some uh, depredation elk tag and we had some tags we filled to fill the freezers so that's real important to us and then as soon as we're done filling the freezers and uh, taking care of our extra doe tags and all that. We took care of all that. Ty and I did. And we, uh, as soon as that happens, um, we, we, we play the game out here with the snow and I have cameras strung all over the country in places. So some of my white tails, I literally cannot get to right now. I can't get to the cameras. They've migrated. A lot of my bucks have already migrated five or 10 miles away to, to get through the winter. So those backcountry, real far off cameras that are back in over two or three mountain passes, I'm not getting to right now. So, yeah, I'm working on uh, the low ground right now. What I consider my low ground, I'm shed hunting it. I'm scouting it. Uh, my low ground is all the kind of 4,000 foot elevation and lower where I, my 4,000 feet and lower elevation mountains, I tend to not get any migration. So my deer stay. So I'm targeting all of those areas right now because I can physically get into those areas with the amount of snow. Um, and I do a lot of backtracking this time of the year, really just finding where all my big deer are liking to bed, looking for those specific bucks, sheds, target bucks for and potential up and comers for next year. That's what I'm targeting right now. Um, like when I go over to Washington and even out of state, I'm any state where it allows me to put minerals and stuff out this time of year, I put it out. So I'm helping the deer. Um, and then I'm also chomping at the bit for the snow levels to drop so I can get into some of my real backcountry buck areas that where the bucks actually migrate because I have cameras that I leave out all winter. And I do it on purpose just to see which bucks survived how long the bucks stayed in there, how much snow it took them to push them out before they migrated. And then I go back in and replenish all of those mineral sites or whatever and and just get ready. I mean, I'm getting ready for April, May, and June when they start really putting on some antlers. So, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And tons of shed hunt. I really, I love to shed hunt. I've got a shed dog. And uh, a, lot of the t a lot of times I find where my 
my bucks pretty much hide out and live in that late season from all the pressure that they've received. I'll find their sheds. And then the next year, like I did this year on that big six by five that Tyson almost killed, I literally was able to identify his bedding zone in the late season because of where he had shed, because a lot of our bucks shed in the, in the middle of January. So they, they give away that information to us because they haven't left their favorite hideout when the season gets over around Christmas and then they shed in the middle of January, they haven't left yet. So they give us that evidence of where we need to hunt them that next year in that late season. So we're doing a lot of that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. And I've often killed bucks. Some of my bigger deer, the oldest, older, bigger deer that I've ever killed. I've got a lot of their sheds on the wall. Yeah. And, and those shed finds lead me to their favorite hideouts, their bedding zones for that late season. So once, once you're kind of done with your shed hunting and kind of getting the evidence and, and uh, you know, getting proof that they're still alive and all that kind of stuff, yep. what are you doing, say, you know, early, early summer, late spring to try and prepare for the season? Are you at that point going to, I know you set up like a lot of mock scrapes and you yep. use, um, yep. I can't remember what brand it is that. You the buck tend, fever synthetics. Yeah, the buck fever synthetics and stuff like that. Yeah. So are you doing that then, or what are you kind of doing then towards yeah, the, yeah. the late? I'm uh, – so let's talk late late winter, early spring, right? Yeah. Well, I was uh, going to say after you're done doing the shed hunting. So like – So I kind of wrap up my shed hunting in April, end of April. Okay. Um, the month of April, though, is a combo month for me. I'm I'm not only just finishing up my shed hunting. When I'm out in the woods, I'm scouting, I'm shed hunting, and when I see the right situation and scenario unfold in front of my eyes when I'm out there, I'm I'm marking in my mind where I want to come back and probably build a mock scrape. Uh, when it gets into April and May, I'm building those mock scrapes. Okay. And I'm thinking way ahead to will this buck be in this location? when the August 30th opener is. So for example, and I think this will tie it all together. I spoke really early in the podcast about a giant that I was hunting in September. Right. Yeah. And I was on him. I was in the game. I really thought I had him killed and I spent a month with him, meaning I didn't have a month of days, but the whole month of September, I only hunted that buck. That's how good of a buck he is. Like probably be the biggest deer I ever killed in my life. Nice. Gross, gross score, gross wise. And he was a stud five-year-old. So incredible genetics for being five. And I really felt I had him. I mean, I was just in the game with him all the time, but the distance I had to go to hunt him was my biggest obstacle. Just, I felt like I needed a few more days to get a sit on him because those old deer don't make many daylight mistakes in the early season because they don't move much during the day in the early season. They don't need to, it's hot. They they lay up and do all their work at you know they get up and eat that's it they check yeah. a licking branch that's it they're not they're not doing anything but a licking branch and eating and drinking that's it so you talk to any guy that really targets older real older age class structure a big deer early season they're not moving as much as they are during the scraping and rutting phase of the rut they're just not you know there's no reason to so anyway. 
I will. I'm already game planning for him, hoping that he's alive. Can't get to the camera yet because of the snow. Uh, but I'm already game planning for him, strategically thinking about where I'm going to add setups for him to try to figure out what he does after the month of September, because that's where he gets really sporadic. And then on my other deer, I'm doing the same thing. If there's any improvement I can make to where I'm setting up, how I'm getting in, uh, if I need to clean out a trail, if I need to create a new pathway into a certain stand that I really like over a big community scrape, I'll do those types of things. Just trying to improve every setup I have. At the same time, I'm dropping cameras and building mock scrapes in new areas, even in even in new spots within a big buck's terrain and his core area. Because a lot of times with these older deer, sometimes you sometimes you're a hundred yards or two hundred yards off of a of an area that he really wants to travel through and likes to travel through, especially in these mountains. And if you just move 100 or 200 yards, that can be all the difference in the world to what he prefers for travel. Yeah. And, it, and if you will, my country is just straight timber. As far as the eye can see, a sea of timber. So there's canopy everywhere with the occasional logging, clear cut, little tiny meadow, everything steep and real, uh, you know, topographical. So. With all that being said, you're trying to find funnels that aren't a traditional type of funnel or travel route that you would see on a farm country map where it's so, really identified. So when when you're dropping these these scrapes, are you um, like how big are you going with them? Are you making them just like a little satellite scrape or are you trying to make and create like a big primary scrape? I only. I only target community scrapes, uh, which are giant, and they they show decades of existence. So when I build a mock scrape, I don't waste my time on anything but a scrape that a mature buck would identify with when he sees it visually and smells it. He smells multiple deer profiles in it, and he sees multiple licking branches, and he sees years of use. And what happens is when I do this, and I get this on video all the time, when a mature buck first finds one of my mock scrapes, he'll literally come in and almost circle it and really look it over. And, and it's my impression from watching these videos over and over on these big older deer, and a lot of them I've killed and some, you know, a lot of them have got away from me, but still, they always come in and they act like, how in the hell did I miss this in my terrain? Say, yeah. and, and I put several deer profile scents in it. You know, I have the buck fever has four or five different urine scents that I use. Um, back in the old days, before I ever had a product, I would just dig the dirt up during a hot on a big community scrape. And I would put it in Ziplocs and freeze it. And then I would transfer that dirt to another scrape up to 100 miles away. It didn't matter. Or I would save it to the next year, freeze it and throw all that dirt, sprinkle it all over in a mock that I built. So that's nice. how I used to. That's yeah. how I used to transfer multiple deer urine profiles. That's a good idea. Nowadays, <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, I nowadays I just use the different profiles that Buck Fever has for different urines, and I'll put them in the mock scrape, and I'll make multiple licking branches and make them look like they're authentic to that neck of the woods. And that comes yes. from the scouting too. Anyway, when a buck walks in, he sees it. It's a big visual, and then all the scent is there too. 
and usually with my uh usually with my mature bucks they immediately want to know a lot more about it they frequent it and then they want to um come back to it and and understand why they've missed it so much in their terrain yeah so when when um when you're putting it in like are you picking a location that has the licking branches or are you putting licking branches there yourself kind of placing them or something i do it two different ways if i happen to come across the perfect species of licking branch that i'm looking for for that neck of the woods that area and i and identify that by scouting that area first i just use what's already there uh, and, and i'll build the scrape below it because it's the right location i can set a tree stand in there i've got all i go through all that in my mind can i get in and out of here can i hunt this is it a very killable location am i near a big bucks core bedding area all that has to come into play first or do I believe I'm near a big bucks core bedding area based on the habitat and the terrain? And I can right. usually get, I can usually nail that pretty close as far as just reading the, reading the lay of the land, the habitat, the vegetation, all that. And then if I don't have what I need at the location I really like, and I want to be able to get into and hang a stand at, then I'll harvest the type of species of the favorite, the most favorable species that I see of a vegetation or a tree branch that the deer in that area like to use for a community scrape. And it's because I found the community scrapes already. I found okay. some and, and it's because I've shed hunted and scouted the hell out of the area to where I've located what the deer like. I'll mimic that. I'll even cut the branches off, pack them through the woods, put them where they need to be, hang them on a tree. Uh, I'll strap them on with an extra trail camera strap, whatever it takes. I'll hang it out at the right height. I will sculpt with, my rubber gloves on, all the licking branches, I'll twist them, beat the hell out of them, make them look like they've been there for decades, and then I'll blow the dirt out and make a great big scrape, and then I'll add all the urine profiles to it. That way, when the first big mature buck rolls in and sees that, he immediately gets a scent profile and a visual that looks exactly like the other community scrapes in his neck of the woods, and he wants to know why in the hell he's missed this one. <laughs> that's, that's a good idea. <laughs> so um, after after you're doing that um, and, and you're setting up your scrapes, then are you just kind of putting cameras on them, letting them soak? And then how yeah, long are you exactly. letting them go before you check them? Right. Let's say I built these from February all the way into May. Okay. Because late February, even when I'm shed hunting, if I come across a location, it just has everything I need in my checklist, including a big set of sheds on my pack. You know what I mean? Yeah. I will lay one down right there. And so I'm always prepared. It's always in my pack. I always have my kit with me. But how long do I let them soak? Community, you know, licking branches get hit year round. Everybody, everybody uh, that's listening, and I hope everybody realizes that the licking branches get get worked year round socially. The dirt part of the scrape just needs to show that it has residual sense of urine in the dirt. And deer can smell that for months after the season down in the dirt, just like a dog can. Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll usually always put now, because I want the evidence, I always put one camera up real high, and I use the spy high system. And it's public land, so I'll hang one 12 or 15 feet up high. And kind of back overlooking the whole scenario with the scrape as the centerpiece. And then I'll usually hide, take a 
camera and I'll disguise it. I'll brush it in, whatever I got to do to get it down on the ground level. And I'll usually shoot it right out at the scrape licking branches and through the licking branches and put it on video because I like to watch 30 to 60 seconds of video on these big bucks because it tells me a lot about their personality yeah. and how they come in, how they behave, how the does behave, everything. And then I'll, if it's a really great spot and I have high hopes for it, I'll add a third camera on picture on the scrape. So one set way back, one on picture down low, not low, low, but down to get really good up closes and then one on video, but always at least two cameras, always, always two cameras on a good scrape. And one is always on video. No, that makes sense. I don't, I don't do a lot of video. I should do more video. And then again, I don't run a whole lot of cameras either, but I always feel like I'm missing shots yeah. of that yeah. deer or, or not really seeing the full picture when I, when I don't have video. Yeah. If you run video, you learn the intricacies about that deer. You can really study his body language and his mannerisms, especially when he comes in around, like say you're hunting a target, like if I'm hunting a big target buck, uh, that video will show me how he acts around other deer uh, if he's a real dominant guy or if he's more, if he's a little more, Hey, I'll wait back till another other deer walks through here to make sure the coast is clear. Or if he's a bully, you know, if I get on a great big bully buck that I like and I want to kill, he's in trouble because bullies tend to get killed. <laughs> that's because they, they, they more responsive up. to those grunts and stuff. Yeah. Well, they yeah. just screw up. Yeah. They want to yeah. dominate the scrape. They want to dominate all the does. They want to dominate all the bucks. So they show up in daylight more often. Yeah, um, no, the, the hardest the hardest bucks to kill are the big recluses, the ones that, yeah, they get their girls, but they also don't have to get all the girls. Those are the hardest big deer to kill, the oldest. And again, when I say big, I mean old. Those old bucks that are careful. Yeah, yeah. and then I just let them soak. I let them soak from. I've got cameras out right now, in some incredible traditional, on some incredible traditional community scrapes that I've been able to kill multiple bucks over the years at those scrape sites. Um, understand though, at these scrape sites, these community scrapes, they were there decades before I was alive. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. I've hunted, I've got a couple of scrapes that I've hunted since I was in my teens. Wow. Which is incredible, but it does happen in the big woods. The deer herds in the area, the doe family groups, the young bucks, they all get raised and the mothers, all the mother does teach the young before they kick them off or while they keep their does with them the rest of their life, their deer family groups, they literally teach their young where these community scrapes are so that they can leave their communication information. Man, that makes me wonder if any of the places that I hunt have have something like that. I mean, you would think they probably do at some point, but I've, I don't think I've ever come across something that, that would every, be like that. Every place I've ever hunted, in North America, the whitetail buck, there's always a community hub scrape somewhere in a, in an area where all the deer can go to. They can scent check it and identify who's still alive, who made it through the hunting season, who made it past the predators for the winter, and they leave their information there to just let the herd know, hey, I'm still here, I'm still alive, I'll be around. And wow. the older, the bigger, the older and the more breed, uh, more breeder tendencies that the older bucks have they'll tend to dominate those scrapes as they get older a little more, or they'll get pushed away out of an area if they're not the dominant buck in there and they might go somewhere else. Interesting. That, that yeah. 
going to have to start looking more for, I mean, I found community scrapes, but I don't know. Some of them I've stumbled upon. They weren't there two years ago and they're there now, you know, so. And that's, pro- that's not, to me, in my definition of a community scrape, that's not a community scrape. Okay. If you find a, a true community traditional scrape, you'll see years and years of evidence of it being used. You'll yeah. see, you'll see decades of evidence. Some of, some of the spots I hunt though, year to year, it changes whether or not it gets flooded out or, okay. or you know what I mean? Okay. So it's like, okay. I think their, their, their patterns shift. Cause I love like big wide open river bottoms that are, you know, kind of hilly and, and, you know, water will come up one year and be up to the top of that hill and the next year it won't be. And, you know, right. So it all kind of fluctuates like that to the, to where I think their patterns change based upon that water level and and also crops. Right. And I don't have that. I have these giant mountains that underneath the timber canopy, there's some scrapes that have existed for a long time. No, that's awesome. (laughs) That's pretty cool. but But I can still go in and manipulate those deer which is really interesting. I can take that same exact look, build it, construct it, identity, keep my human scent out of it, and get those deer to act as if, how in the heck did they miss it? And then they start checking it. And my does, what's incredible is my doe family group, when they find it, they'll often camp out on it. Like, it's super important to them. They'll camp out real close to it and just use it all the time. A lot of times my does are using it way more and April, May, June, July on the licking branch, my does are very consistent. Yeah. My, my bucks that if I can be positioned close to where a big buck is bedding, he'll, he'll use it a lot. If he doesn't move into that area until say October, then he'll start using it a lot more then. Um, so I play the whole scrape game with bucks in September and October when they're actually in more of a summer area. A lot of times higher elevation, I'll go in and put one right in their face next to their bedding area and it just forces them to come and check it. Okay. So, so like you would say that like er, super early season, cause I was going to ask you that, that was going to be kind of the next thing I wanted to kind of get to is right before, you know, season, wh- what are you doing? So that makes sense. You're, you're forcing a buck to get out of his bed that he might not normally do because he wants to kind of cruise and just check those. Yeah. I've got it. Let's that big deer. I hunted early this year. He, he's smart as hell. He's public land. He's been pressured where he lives. Trust me. There's plenty of people hunting and knows it and know of him. He's been on other people's cameras. I know it. And uh, I mean, he's just too, too incredible not to, and he gets plenty of foot traffic. So I found a spot on him that was hard to get to. And I knew he was bedding over in this north because I started getting him on my camera all summer in the broad daylight, midday. I was close to him. And I had a feeling I was going to be close when I hung this camera. But what I did is went in there and shed hunted the hell out of it in April. And I found this giant community scrape where I thought, oh, my gosh, it's got to be close to where he hangs early season. So what I did is just overmark that big community scrape in April. And guess who the first mature buck was on that camera in April and May? Him. <laughs> he, sh- he shows up in May. And I, what I think he had done is migrated back in in May. And he f- went right to one of his favorite spots because of the food source that was there for him all through the summer. And that food source 
I literally have video of him, 30-second video after 30-second video of him standing around my scrape eating that food source. And and so I'm playing everything and, you know, I'm considering everything in the early season. You got to have the food. You got to be close to the bed. He's not going to move much in the daylight. So why not juice a scrape up that's a community-style scrape that they're comfortable checking the licking branch on even in the early season? Why not? Yeah. So now he's got those extra scents and trying to figure out who they are. That Yeah, I've got him good... with this. Yeah. I'm just yeah. straight bio, straight biology on him. His stomach, <laughs> water was there. I had water there. I had his food there. I threw a scrape at him. Um, and I was probably, if I had to guess, I never purposely walked into right where I thought he was laying down because I didn't want to blow him off the mountain. Because wolf and lion hunted white tails will leave. When they get hunted by mountain lions and wolves their whole life, like when the wolves come in on me, guess what happens to my big bucks for about a month? Oh, yeah. I never see them they, again. They sometimes cruise they out, yeah. Sometimes I don't see them until the next year. Depends on what time of year it is. So I purposely didn't walk in and try to find his physical bed, but I had him on camera and video coming up out of this north, and it was obvious where he was coming from up this trail. And I had backtracked and walked that trail shed on it, so I knew right where that trail headed down into the north face. And it was nice and cool down there. And he had a big spring down in below him. So I know that's where he was camped and that's where he was always coming up. And I had three cameras, sometimes four on him the whole summer because I really was trying to gather info on him. And then I hung my stand. When was it? Probably August. And I got to hunt him September, all the month of September. But only, I think I got, I think because of the distance, I got to hunt him five or six hunts. Which, yeah. uh, you know, I also didn't want to overhunt the spot and just blow him out. But I was really close at the end of September to taking my mobile and moving closer to where I thought he was coming from. And the only thing I might change is if I had to go back and do it over again, knowing what I know now, I probably should have moved about 150 yards in a specific direction to try to pick him up a little closer to his bed. I think he was only bedded 250 yards from me, Max, though. Yeah. So I probably should have pushed the envelope a little, but my mindset in September was you got all the way till the middle of December to hunt this deer, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then I had yeah. wolves come in. I had wolf come wolves come in on October 6th and I haven't seen him since. Yeah. See, I don't have and to worry about that. What's that? I said, I, don't, I definitely don't have to worry about that here in Illinois yeah, the wolves, or at the, least every, yet. <laughs> yeah. I had the wolves show up and I did, I have not seen that. Well, that deer got, I got snowed out on that deer pretty early and ended up changing over to a different deer that was killable too. So I didn't spend as much time on that buck. But when I saw those wolves come through and then I had a full month of not having him on camera the whole month of October, um, obviously I want to go kill a deer and I got other good big deer to hunt. So I just jumped on some other bucks. And then when I went back in November to check on him, I couldn't find him. Yeah. That sucks. Well, yeah, hopefully next year, right? <laughs> as yeah, long as he shows up. Yeah, and that's part of it. You know, he might be dead. He might be wolf shit. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but he might be alive. And if he is alive, he's, you know, he's a buck of a lifetime. And I'll hunt, you know, the one thing I'm going to do, you want to talk, I'm to prep for him. This year, I've already mapped it all out. I've got five spots picked out of where I'm going to set up these community scrapes and see if I can't locate him in some other huntable areas. And it's 
if you look at it on a map, it's real steep uh, topographical ground that really has a lot of uh, fluctuation to it as far as terrain elevation. Um, I'm literally circling him this year. I'm going to circle where I had his bedding area out to almost a mile all the way around him. And I'm going to see if I can pick him up in a better hideout that he uses to where, to where maybe he'll be more comfortable, you know, during October, November. Yeah. So anyway. No, that's, that's all good information. I think that's pretty good. I think we covered it pretty good, you know, as far as how you're breaking it down. I find that helpful. And there are definitely some things I'm going to try and apply now that you've kind of shed more light on them. I know we kind of touched base on some of that stuff before, but it's good to kind of compound on that and be able to build my my base and my arsenal with it. So with that being said, Troy, I think it's awesome. And I thank you for coming on. Before we go, can you kind of uh, tell everybody where they can find you and, and all the cool stuff you've talked about, the products and whatnot? Yeah, you bet. Uh, Buck Fever Synthetics uh, USA. Uh, anybody that wants to try the Buck Fever Synthetics line of scent, it, I've been using it for over 20 years. I absolutely love it. It doesn't spook deer. It works excellent. The forehead gland for the licking branch and then the multiple different types of urine profiles that you can put in a scrape. They're just incredible. And I'll, I usually uh, do a big show out here every year and, and have a shipment of Buck Fever too. So some guys can uh, message me directly if they're looking for some products and i can help that way and i'll give you my instagram in a sec and then uh film for whitetail addictions tv and the lone wolf custom gear guys uh, we use all their stands um to find me on social media uh, mountain man mtn man underscore 33 is my instagram handle and then troy pottinger on youtube i'm starting to compile some stuff for youtube i've got a i've got a lot of big plans for youtube this year i'm excited to get a lot of like uh, semi-live type videos going here real soon like i literally worked on my youtube format today and got it ready to go and then just troy pottinger on facebook which is pretty loaded um but i always try to save space for the whitetail guys and go through and clean it out every now and then and you know, the people that really, truly want to talk whitetails, I really enjoy that. So, um, Troy, yeah. What's what's that group um, that you're part of? I can't remember the name of it. That's oh, on the, Facebook. Uh, that yeah, the, yeah, please come over and visit our mobile hunter site, uh, Lone Wolf Custom Gear, Mobile Hunters United. Yeah, Mobile Hunters. Mobile Hunters Mo- United. That's it. That's, mobile I, Hunters I see United, yeah. A lot of times, you know, guys will post something kind of – pull you into it and then you know you'll drop some knowledge or something on them i always like like reading those (laughs) yeah and i'm a i they just asked me to help moderate that site so i'll be on there more often cool all right man i appreciate it troy thanks for coming on and sharing and and if anybody wants to reach out and find you um you you told them where to get get in touch with you so absolutely and thanks for having me luke yeah absolutely we'll keep in touch too because as the season progresses, I'm sure there'll be questions, Troy. So <laughs> sounds great. I really appreciate it. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the publicly challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review that would help us out and you can check us out on Instagram, 
or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hawks cave oh that's awesome experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.